Susan and I stood in the biting wind looking down on a 5,000-year-old house. A bird looked back up at us through the space where the roof should have been. This was Scarabray on Orkney, covered by the tides of time, uncovered by a sea storm in 1850, older than Stonehenge. Scarabray is a settlement of small stone buildings, eight walls roughly circular, touching like cells in a beehive. Enough space for about 50 people to live. We could see heavy slabs of stone forming what looked like cupboards or dressers. There were spaces made using thinner rectangles of stone that might have been beds. The pattern was repeated in almost all the dwellings, and it was amazingly domestic, familiar. It was impossible not to imagine families mingling, passing in and out of houses, laughing, arguing, shutting their doors at night. They had made pottery and had carved and polished strange faceted stone balls on which they etched designs, purpose unknown. This was a small thriving community well before the Great Pyramids were built. Beyond the houses, the sea moved restlessly in the long curve of the Bay of Scale. A seal stuck its head out of the waves. Steely light shimmered in our eyes. It was summer, and it was cold. The sea looked ready to rush the land, but the weather was in no hurry to clamp down. Even so, it wanted to remind us that it was there. One day, or one night, at some time, sooner or later, the wind would partner up with the water, select Scarabray for special attention, and remove it again. We're only allowed to look at things for so long. The Sky Machine by Martin Liddermont Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. Chapter 5 Between the Sweet and the Salt I'd used up a chunk of our remaining cash to hire a car to get us to Orkney. After Inverness, the roads were mostly empty, but it wasn't until we reached the ferry port at Scrabster, wedged under a fingernail of land at the tip of Scotland, that I felt safe from pursuit. We sat in the VW and watched fishermen walk up from the sea to the pubs, which looked functional and honest, made for the purpose of getting professionally wasted after work. The accommodation and eating places were set on our left along the access road under a low cliff. We had parked so we could see up and down that road. To our right, the port moved in the staccato rhythms small industrial harbours always seem to achieve, the occasional person appearing from nowhere to shift a coil of rope or to open a corrugated metal door. One drove a vehicle into a storage area where squat white tanks sat like enormous buttons waiting to be pushed. Then he got out of the vehicle and clumped off leaving its engine running. I felt that people were here to practice a resigned and heavy body language that suggested they had to pick away continually at something difficult and complex and secret. Something that it took a long, hard time to learn. Something you would not feel inclined to share with anyone who hadn't paid their dues. As the sailing time approached, we joined the cars that were being stacked nose to tail between white lines on the tarmac in front of the ferry terminal. 
Boxed in, I felt a sudden need to move freely, so I got out of the car, and Susan followed me into the terminal buildings. Inside there was a counter, some metal seats, and tourist brochures in racks. We sat with a mix of hikers, cyclists, and drivers. Everyone looked seasoned and competent, dressed for bad weather. Everyone was silent. The wind tested the thick glass in the windows, and from time to time a gull shot past on what looked like a suicide dive, only to swing up again and disappear over the roof. We read. Susan had her tablet, while I had a guide to Orkney and its history. I'd picked it up in Thurso, the nearest town to the port. That's where I learned about the archaeology, Orkney's historical gems. The archipelago is studded with heritage sites, beautifully excavated, preserved and presented in an open, straightforward way that allows more interaction than some other places. I knew I would have to see some of them before I left. That was the thing. I knew I wouldn't be able to stay, even if Susan elected to. What would I live on once my money was gone? I didn't think jobs would be plentiful or easy to find. We didn't discuss that, though. All our talk was of getting there. I kept checking my watch, but Susan sat and read as though she had stepped outside time. Eventually I became aware of a deep throbbing in the air. It was the pulse of massive diesel engines. The ferry was backing up to the loading pier. It followed its own sound, yet seemed to set itself apart from that. It looked like a massively significant and dignified thing that glided on the surface like a great seabird. It was tall, overshadowing the huts and units of the harbour. It slipped past the walls, slowing to a precision stop. We got back into the car and inched it forwards with the others. We were chained down swiftly and competently by the deck crew in the hold, and found the stairs up to the passenger levels. The ferry was very comfortable, lots of glass, polished wood and soft seating. There was a bar and a hot food outlet. We got bacon rolls and sat munching them as the ferry made its way out to sea. Soon the horizon was rolling and tilting, and everything outside the window was a mass of shifting grey and green. So I went up on deck to have a look around. There's something about a sea voyage, even a relatively short one of a few hours, that makes me feel anticipation. My imagination is dragging land towards me from over the rim of the horizon long before I can make out a shadowy coastline. So I stood in front of the big funnels as they drooled smoke into the sky and let the wind batter my face while I willed the island of Hoy and the main part of the archipelago to appear. And slowly the land came into sight. Hoy first, its isolated sea stack and vertical cliffs looking formidable, inaccessible. The ferry was still battling the last cross currents of the Pentland Firth. From time to time it shuddered, seemed to draw breath and plunged forwards again. It gave me confidence. I could feel its mass of steel and steady power applied to the waves, breasting them. I enjoyed the rise and fall of the deck, the slight check, and then the onwards rush. I licked my lips and tasted salt. The clouds above were as dark as the engine smoke. Stratocumulus castellanus globus. Cauliflower masses blooming over the seascape thickening and lengthening and sending tufts of lighter grey upwards, no more than a couple of kilometres high, like bobbles of dirty wool on an old sweater. And then, a couple of hours later, we made the approach to Stromness along a channel that eventually opened out to reveal the town. 
The grey and white faces of the buildings stared out at us under the backdrop of clouds and a long, low hill. They were inscrutable. Everything seemed frozen, static. After disembarking, we found a free spot to leave the car and lugged our bags up the hill to a row of houses that overlooked the sea. Susan's flat was on the second floor of one of these. She led the way to an outside staircase, warning me about the slippery wooden steps. We went up them carefully, and she unlocked the door into a small and functional set of rooms. Her books and monitoring equipment were set neatly against one wall, and helpfully there was a futon in the main living area which meant she could flop into her own bed and have a good night's sleep. I found it more difficult to rest, but that was also partly down to something that I had noticed as we drove off the ferry. A stack of containers in a nearby holding bay. The top one had the name Hellazen on its side, printed red in a large block font. I decided not to mention it to Susan. She was looking happier, and as Varma had said, they were a big, respected company. We were bound to see their name in a shipping port somewhere. No big deal. On our first full day on Orkney, we visited Scarabray and ate scones and cake in the little restaurant there, and then went to the small chambered cairn on the side of a hill, crowned with cell phone masts and microwave transmitters. It was a steady climb along a narrow and deeply worn track, not the sort of track that many tourists would attempt. We were rewarded with what looked like a concrete bunker and a little box set in front of it shaped like a Swiss cottage surmounting a post. A sign said, please replace the torch after use. I opened the door of the little box and there was the torch, a nice one too. I wondered how many ancient monuments could afford to have equipment left like that without fear of theft. We hauled open a metal hatch on the top of the bunker and climbed down a narrow ladder into the cairn. Its narrow passage cut through the side of the hill and was lined with big stones, corbelled to make a roof. Side chambers would have held the carefully collected bones of the dead after they had been excarnated on the hillside by the birds or maybe in this case by land animals. The bones of dog-like creatures had been found mixed with the Neolithic human remains. I wondered if the creatures that ate the flesh of the dead and thereby prepared them for veneration were also worshipped here. That night we sat in the corner of a pub where a real stone fire was blazing and we listened to folk music until closing time. It felt so safe there in the semi-dark, letting our drinks warm us. A million miles away from the danger we had been in. Safe from pursuit, we hoped. The following morning, we drove to the Ness of Brodger, early before the sun came up. Rabbits hopped and zigzagged down the road in front of us, then shot sideways into the dewy grass verges. Birds took off, protesting and perched on broken stone walls, ruffling and preening. The Ness is a thin bone of road, squeezed between two locks. It's an isthmus of rock and soil left over where the original land got eaten away on both sides by wind and water. At one end there's a few standing stones that show where a henge once stood. Nothing spectacular after some early 19th century vandalism by an English landlord, but people like to photograph the sun through them. Further along the road, in the middle of the Ness, covered with thick, mud-smeared plastic sheeting and held down against the Orkney winds by hundreds of old tyres, is arguably the finest and most important Neolithic site on the planet. And so said my guidebook. I couldn't argue with that. 
Around a hundred archaeologists descend on the nests every summer for a few brief weeks of digging and sifting through the collapsed, pancaked Neolithic buildings. They can take advantage of the long Orkney days, working relatively unencumbered by the weather. They aren't certain whether it's a sort of temple complex, or maybe a feasting and communal hub, or a combination of both. One thing is clear, it's not a settlement. It's a huge complex with large, thick-walled structures unique to the site. A massive wall ran around it. There are no houses there of the sort found at Scarabray. And a short walk further to the north is the Ring of Brodga. We left the VW in the car parking area and found the path up to the site. As we got there, the dawn came up over the saltwater lock on our left and its light splintered on the freshwater lock to our right. A full moon was pale in the morning sky and it eased itself higher to look down on the ring. Brodga is an absolute thing, totally still and silent, totally right for the place where it's set in the vast landscape of earth and water. Even though fewer than half of its original 60 stones remain in place, the circle still holds together, creating a contained world, a human-made horizon. Our ancestors put a shape to something very big here, and the ore remains. The sky seems to slot into it, meshing with the ground and the monoliths like two cogs engaging. We walked slowly round the stones, touching them from time to time. They were strangely thin, laminated and sharp-edged where the wind, bringing flying grit and lashing rain, had eroded them over the centuries. I had read that some had probably been struck by lightning and splintered to destruction. It seemed entirely appropriate for the shape and the feeling of the place that it should have been worn down by all the elements, including fire from the sky. Brodger is a place completely at ease with its purpose, whatever that was. It doesn't matter if its reasons have been forgotten. Brodger knows the memories are there, in the land of the dead. At some time in the future, a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand years from now, someone will walk back from that bounded world with a magical story that will release every ghost from its past. Until then, the ring waits, ready. A testament to the effort of an organised society that could build something a hundred metres across with tall, thin, standing stones that look as if some maniacal god screaming with delight has flung them downwards, spearing the turf. They came here, said Susan quietly, walking out of the world of the sun, purifying themselves by crossing fire pits set in the temple doorways and following the path between the sweet water of life and the salt water that only the dead can drink, and then into the ring, to talk to the people they had lost. I looked at her. Where have you read that? I asked. Nowhere, she replied. It's what I feel. I can believe it, I said. I can feel it too. We said nothing else. The sun rose higher, and the shadows of the old stones laid down carefully on the heather. The moon was almost invisible now. Connection, Susan said, rolling a grass stem between her fingers. We had sat down in front of one of the stones, 
and we were slowly warming up in the sunlight. Connection, I asked. The moon, she said. Same moon, more or less, as when this place was built. And it's one of many others around the world. I looked it up once. Over a thousand circles in the British Isles and northern France and then others scattered around the globe. There's one in Turkey where the monoliths are huge and shaped like Thor's hammer. It's at least as old as this place, maybe older. Imagine the people, thousands of years in the past, gazing up at the moon and the stars, wondering what those lights were. They were homo sapiens like us. Only we know more, allegedly. I can feel them here with us, she said. Touching the same grass, the same heather, looking at and feeling and smelling the same air, earth and water. What is it that gets put between then and now? Progress, I said. We've walked on that. I nodded up at the moon. Man had stepped there, left his mark. How old was I when it happened? Too young to remember the live broadcasts. My father was obsessed, excited. What I do remember is that he set up his old telescope in the garden and made me look at the wobbly image of the moon. He pointed out the lunar landscapes the missions had explored, and later he collected books on the subject. I said to Susan, and we've looked back at the earth and seen it's a blue and white sphere rolling like a marble in a track under the watchful eye of the sun. Oh yes, the blue marble, Susan said thoughtfully. Wasn't that an Apollo photo? Yes, but the same name was given to a 2002 composite. The missions took a lot of shots of Earth, but the 2002 image was made by NASA from strips of photographic captures from weather satellites. You can see small repeating patterns where the planets rotated and they couldn't stitch everything together. What? said Susan. My voice had trailed away as I tried to remember something. I shrugged and shook my head. Just thinking about those satellite images in the rock, the ones that got everybody into trouble. What about them? I don't know. How far back did you look in the archives? Susan wrinkled her forehead as she thought. All the way, she said. After the early 2000s, I went back to the 1960s when the records began. The National Climatic Data Center stuff is in the rock, along with most other archives. You know they digitized everything and have it backed up every which way. Only the rock could afford to do that. Having umpteen dozen differently separately funded programs was deemed inefficient by Congress. I wonder, I said. You wonder what? I wonder whether there's a library here where I can get on a computer, I said. I want to see whether any of the old archives, or at least bits of them, have survived. You could try the library in Kirkwall, Susan said which is where I went for the next couple of days, while Susan took herself off on shopping trips and relaxed. In the library, I sat in front of the computer and wondered if what I was doing was in any way, shape or form a sensible act. Neither of us had logged on since Helsinki. We had been paranoid about the danger of being traced by whoever. I sighed and decided to set up a new email address and a new password for anything where I needed to authenticate myself. Then I went digging in the bits and bytes of the history of the Earth's weather. Trust me, you have to be interested to get excited by archives. On the whole, you're presented with tables full of abbreviations and short codes, sometimes with clickable links to downloadable files. We're talking old school here. 
The nomenclature is often obscure and outdated. In the past, I've had to look up explanations of explanations until the acronyms tail off into anything approaching normal English. The rock, the repository of climatology, had been so good, so efficient at cataloguing all this type of complexity that people were now used to asking it almost natural language questions. Talk to the rock's interface and its semantically enhanced database would come back with eerily accurate answers, making browsing through lists a thing of the past. And gradually, the original archives were shut down or abandoned as their owners lost funding or lost interest or simply moved on to other things. Organisations come and go, as do people. But some were not happy about this. I assumed they liked collecting things for the sake of it. I couldn't criticise them for that. After all, what had I been doing with my boyhood weather station? And that was why, in an obscure corner of the internet that I half remembered from a casual conversation with a colleague some years previously, I found a person's name, and associated with that name, an article, and at the bottom of the article a footnote with a link to a mothballed website. And there they were, someone's life work and obsession. Copies of catalogues of the Tiros 1 and Nimbus files. The photographic output of the earliest weather satellites, active in the 1960s and early 70s. The sort of image I'd been looking at before I was booted out of the rock. I had finished in the library, and I was walking to meet Susan, as agreed, where we had parked the car. From a distance, I spotted the green shine of her jacket. Susan was standing by the Volkswagen. She was holding two carrier bags. I wondered why she hadn't put them in the back and got in. But as I came closer, I could see that she was crying. I ran to her. We have to go back, she said. Now, today, if there's a sailing we can catch. Her whole body was shaking. Why? I asked. Look, was all she said. I looked into the car. On the dashboard, placed exactly in its centre, like a new, modern thing, not something older than the pyramids, seeming to have been made today, not millennia ago, was a fist-sized stone ball, carved, polished, and faceted. A perfect spiral had been engraved into each of its shining surfaces. Sky Machine is written and produced by Martin Liddermont. Performed by Jennifer Bardsley and Martin Liddermont. Music by Purple Planet Music, Daniel Birch and the Pangolins. Additional sounds by Degola and Metzig at freesound.org. Music